Now we'll have again a change of pace after having heard all about this unpleasant insight into impermanence we'll get back to the meditative absorption so what you can recognize is calm and insight I'll take you step by step through the meditative absorption and step by step through the insight and if you like one better than the other you know already what's happening attachment to that which is pleasant it's a human condition we always do it but in reality on an absolute level the insight which eventually comes to fruition is the only thing that brings total peace even though it may appear to be unpleasant or unacceptable or not quite the way one wanted it on the way there because as I've told you several times already the jhanas each one is also impermanent you have to look at the impermanence of each step in the jhanas at the end not while they're happening of course so whatever is impermanent cannot give total satisfaction but at least what they do they purify the mind they soothe the mind they give the mind a level of acting and reacting which is beyond the senses and the logic so we are on a platform there which is the ideal springboard for insight and the first two we have already discussed and I'll just repeat the insights that must come from them not just that they're impermanent the mind being a magician can also look at it on a very superficial level and say well yes they're impermanent but I can get back and sit down and do it again which is our usual reaction to impermanence of that what we like so that doesn't help us in, into insight but they are as you know antidotes for hindrances and the insights which need to arise is in the first instance the fact that all we're looking for is already within us we don't have to keep on looking now that's an experiential insight that's not just a superficial one where we say oh yes it's impermanent but I can have it again that's an attachment one and it's not experiential so the understanding which is our experience that we already have within us that's what we're looking for we have delight and joy within us and the second insight which is bound to arise is the fact that what we carry within is by far superior to what we can get through the senses that again is an experiential insight we are experiencing it it is by far superior we, what we get through the senses and explain through the mind 
which then, after the sense contact, comes into feeling, naming, and then reacting to it with pleasure or disgust, all that has no comparison in strength to what we carry within anyway. So these two are automatically experienced and through that our energy output to get pleasure through the senses is by far reduced and we have far more energy left to work on the spiritual growth. Now I told you that for the second jhana, the first two factors, initial and sustained application, are no longer necessary. The and they're dropped completely, automatically. We don't have to think about it. They just are dropped because we are already concentrated and hopefully enough concentrated so that we don't have to make an effort to sustain our application to the meditation subject, which in the second jhana is the joyful feeling. The joyful feeling which seems to rise in most people from the heart center which is not the physical heart which is beating but the heart center which seems to be in the center of the chest which is only a manner of speaking it arises wherever it is a feeling and it is compared by the Buddha to being submerged like a lotus flower which is submerged with its leaves in the lotus pond being submerged in it so that we are I usually call it bathing in it again we are not standing apart from it and saying oh that's very nice that's joyful but we are it we are submerging in it only then does it have the full power and strength and that full power and strength has an impact on the psyche it has to if one repeats it all the things we do with our mind every bit of it has an impact on our psyche the negativities have the impact and if we continue with them and persist and insist that we have to have them, our psyche becomes very negative. And if we have the opposite, obviously the opposite happens. So we have that already as an also as an automatic happening for us. Now for, in order to go from the second to the third, one very often thinks well yes I'm supposed to flow with everything I've been talking about flowing and so I'll just sit there and wait well that's not according to the Buddha's instructions the Buddha's instructions are like this he says when one has experienced the delight this is delightful sensation the pee the mind after some time knows that too is still gross there must be something more subtle and because of that, the mind goes to the emotion, the emotion of joy. 
In other words, it's a deliberate letting go of the first and directing the mind to the second. Because that is already in existence at the time, so we direct the mind to it quite deliberately. After having been in the first one for some time. Because we realize that emotion is far more subtle than physical sensation. Now, having experienced the emotion of joy, we also realize after some time that that too is still gross. And from a practical standpoint, one can say that the first one is quite, is connected with some excitement and the second one is too. And both seem to be happening up here. Now, this again is only a manner of speaking. It's not possible to invent a new language for a new experience. We have to use the old language and try to explain the new experience. So everything of the first and second jhana seems to be happening up here. And because of that, there is also that understanding. It's quite, um, it can be quite subconsciously um, arising, the understanding, that it still isn't as subtle and as fine as meditation could be. And therefore, <coughs> the joy is dropped. And the mind falls into a state of peacefulness which carries with it contentment. And that is the third step. And that seems to be a drop. Again, a manner of speaking. Nobody drops. It feels as if the mind is dropping, settling, settling down. Where it has been excited before, pleasurably excited, happily excited, it now drops. And it drops into a state which is calm and has contentment in it as an, an attribute. This contentment afterwards has to be understood because, as I've said before and will repeat now, only the understood experience will do us any good. Otherwise, we sit there and have substituted the pleasurable experience of the meditative absorption for the pleasurable experience through the senses. And that is not good enough. It's one step ahead anyway. The one step ahead. But it isn't good enough. It's not enough for this pathway. So we have to have the understood experience. Now the word experience means that we're feeling it. And understood means that we're knowing it. We understand what we have felt. So as we come out of this feeling of calm and contentment, we realize that the only time that we can be absolutely contented is when we're wishless, totally and utterly wishless. No wishes. And the reason we have experienced it, this contentment, is that we have had the inner joy, which is what everybody wants. And having had it, there are no wishes. At that time, we are absolutely content. There's nothing to wish for. We couldn't dream up anything to wish for, because we've got what we've always wanted. Now that brings with it that feeling of contentment. Having understood that, 
we will be able to understand where dukkha comes from, from discontent, from wanting something other than what one has, or wanting the world to be different from what it is, or wanting one's neighbor to be different, or one's partner, or one's teacher, or whatever it may be that one doesn't like. The minute we have discontent, there's no calm, no peace. So we know where Dukkha comes from. And having experienced that, we should, after a short time, be able to have much less Dukkha. But if we don't use this experience for our everyday life, we have had it in vain. It's got to change our reactions, our whole ambience, our whole understanding. It's got to change what goes on within. Having seen that Dukkha comes from discontent with the way things are, we will undoubtedly, every time that some Dukkha arises, recognize its cause, something we don't like, something we want to have changed, and often be able to drop the cause. We can't drop the Dukkha. The Dukkha is there. We've got to drop the cause. And the cause is whatever it is that we don't want or that we want to get rid of, which is exactly the same. We want to either get rid of something or we want to get it. So the causes are that we are not contented with what we have or we are not contented with what we have not. It's really very simple, isn't it? And yet, everybody runs around with loads of dukkha. Little ones, bigger ones, medium-sized ones, called anger, depression, dislike, worry, restlessness, irritation, envy, jealousy, upset, any name, doesn't matter. Sometimes they've got other names. They're called John or Mary or whatever it is. Just names. It's always the same thing. Now, this particular experience must bring that understanding. Now, it does not necessarily bring with it our ability to get rid of dukkha every time. That takes a fair bit of doing. In fact, it takes a fair bit of concentrated mind. The strength of mind depends on strength of concentration. If we are able to concentrate well, which means one-pointedness, staying in one spot, the mind gets muscles. As the mind gets muscles, then, of course, it is far more able to drop what it doesn't need. So that depends on that particular factor. But the minimum which would happen, and that's quite sure that, that we could see that, is our awareness of where our dukkha comes from. Whichever way it manifests, it may manifest as even as a physical dis-ease, unease. It comes from something that we are discontented with. Now, having had the experience of contentment, one would assume that everyone who has had that would try to find as much of the same not connected with the calm, but just contentment in everyday life. 
That means that this is an automatic way towards renunciation. And the word renunciation not ne- does not necessarily mean that one becomes a monk or a nun. It does not necessarily mean that one gives up one's family, one's house, one's job. Nothing like that. It means renouncing the sense pleasures because they don't bring anything. Not because one is suppressing oneself. I told that already yesterday. I'm repeating it quite deliberately because it's a very important point which is so often misunderstood. The suppression of sense pleasure brings nothing but the opposite, a bursting out of that suppression which then results in the exact opposite or it results in unhappiness. The Buddha's instructions are not for unhappiness. On the contrary, they're for happiness. It wouldn't make sense, would it? for a great spiritual master to teach something for 45 years which has taken over 500 million people that would create unhappiness. Wouldn't make any sense. There's no logic to that. Obviously, he taught something which creates happiness. It just needs to be understood properly. So when we have this experience of the contentment in the third jhana, it automatically tells us where we can find it, through wishlessness. Which again will not make it possible for us to be totally wishless, but it will make it possible for us to have fewer wishes. And as we have fewer wishes, we become far more peaceful. The less we want, the more peace we've got. And that has to be a personal experience. If it isn't, it's just words. And one could easily think when one hears those words, oh, well, that's all right for those people who can do that. Anyone can do it. All one has to do is concentrate. It all starts with watching the breath or concentrate on the sensations. It's for everyone. For every ordinary person, everyone can do it. So this third jhana brings with it a great deal of insight. And this is also the mistaken view, and I'll mention that quite deliberately, because if you talk about such things, you will find this argumentation that the jhanas, are oh, they're not necessary. You don't have to have them because all you need is insight. This is experiential insight. It's the only thing that counts. It's biting into the mango and knowing what it tastes like. And it is the kind of insight which is so obvious that it's totally acceptable. As I start explaining more about insight, when we get to the next point on insight, we will also find that there are insights which create fear and resistance. This is something that we don't experience when we're able to do the jhana because the mind is soothed by it. The mind is at ease, the mind is contented, and therefore a new insight does not upset it. It looks for it, actually. As I have told you, after doing the jhanas, any one of them, it doesn't matter, when you come out of it, 
whatever it is, first, second, third step, that too is impermanent. How did I get there? What did I learn from it? All three steps are essential because they, so to say, round up the experience and make it an understood one. If we don't have the understood experience, we may like it very much. There's no reason why we shouldn't. We will like it very much. But it will still be quite... Um, an un, un, uh, the, the experience itself, not being understood, will be actually something that we can't use properly. And if we can't use it properly, then it's in vain. So we need to see what is actually happening at the end. Now we don't start having internal discussion with ourselves while we're in it. The third one, this calm and contentment, is compared by the Buddha by being wrapped in a white sheet which is completely covering one. So if we're wrapped up in this white sheet, completely covered, it means that we don't have the distance from it as the observer, but are completely in it. The observer is still there. That's the one that after the experience tells you what has happened. But during the experience, the observer is minimized. This is an important point. Even though you may not be experiencing this, it's a very important point. The experiencer is minimized, the observer. And therefore, the experience becomes full-blown. One is the experience. The Buddha gave all these similes to make it understandable. Being totally wrapped up in this white sheet. Nothing showing. No hair, nothing, not even the nose. Nothing just being wrapped up in it completely. At this point, we have let go of actually the first two, initial application, sustained application, the next one, the pleasant sensation, and the joy is still in the background at this time and has been transformed into this contentment. There is a joyous feeling about it, but it's not no longer the focus of attention. In order to gain access to the next one, and I might interject here that the first three are very simple. They're easy to do. The fourth one is difficult. The fourth one is difficult, and I'll explain in a minute why. But the first three, anyone who can enter the first one, can do second and third. From this entry hall to the first and second chamber, it's just a matter of going. But now comes a more difficult undertaking. So we have to let go at this point of any joyous, of any contented feeling and deepen the calm. That sounds simple, doesn't it? But it isn't. I like to compare that and it's only a manner of speaking. 
with a well. First one sits on the rim of the well and dangles one's feet in it. So one has a little bit of peacefulness. That it actually happens when the mind is not shattering too much. And then, from the, then the third jhana one is already going down in it a little bit. But in order to come to the next step, the fourth one, and they're all numbered like this. Buddha numbered them like this to help us memorize. It goes down the well. And it goes down to the bottom of the well, if one can, where there's nothing but stillness. And the observer, the one who's experiencing that, seems to be almost, well, it seems to be gone. The observer is not totally gone. The observer is still there. But there seems to be a complete absence of it at that time. And that complete absence is the difficulty. Because as long as we have an observer, at least we know this is me. And to give up the observer means to give up me. And therefore, the fourth one is more difficult. Now obviously, the whole meditation difficulty, the concentration difficulty, hinges on that difficulty of giving up me. As long as we're thinking, we know we are here. And even if we think the most dreadful thoughts, at least this is me thinking dreadful thoughts. And um, then me having problems. So me is all right. Me is there. Me is there in all its glory. Having to give up me means having to give up thinking, at least temporarily to give up me and to give up thinking. To give up me completely, that's a different story. And hopefully we have enough time to get to that point too. This is just temporarily. Now, obviously, we're only giving up the, the me when we're meditating that is chattering and making itself very well known to us by having viewpoints and opinions, hopes and plans, ideas and memories. Having given that one up, then we have the me that's observing. And as long as the me is very strongly observing, we still can't meditate properly because it's standing outside the experience. It's sitting there looking at it. Well, that's me looking at it. That's the me which is sitting inside, at this time maybe sitting in the middle of the body, who knows where it's sitting, or in the middle of the brain, whatever one has dreamt up, and it's looking at whatever it is that's happening. That again is not the concentrated experience. So now, in order to get the concentrated experience, as I already explained, we have to bridge this gap. have to make that gap smaller till it's no longer existing, which means giving up me to a great extent who's watching all this. Obviously, in the beginning of this path, even if we get to the first, second and third jhana, it's me enjoying it. There's no way around that one. That's it. Me is enjoying it. We have to go much further for me not to be in it. So, but at least we have come to the point where we've given up the me that's got its own ideas, first talking about them, then watching what's going on, and have given up that much so that it's actually experiencing what's going on. Now that's 
is already a great step ahead. But in order to get to the fourth one, from and in one, one, two, three, it can do that. Me is welcome to experience what's going on and enjoy it. But in the fourth one, it can't. It can't be present to the extent that it's actually um, enjoying that, what's happening. It's got to be given up to such a great extent momentarily that all the faculties that we have, the hearing and the thinking and the perceiving and the feeling, is all laid to rest to such an extent that we can be completely covered with stillness. The me has not been given up completely. It's only temporarily suspended to a great extent. There's still something of it there. Otherwise, one cannot say afterwards what actually happened. So having been able to say what happened, there was still the experience, experiences there. But having given up to a great extent, the experience is possible. And that's why it's rather difficult to have a full-blown fourth jhana. I'll tell you a story how the fourth jhana can work for people like the Buddha. One time the Buddha was meditating at the edge of a river, on the bank of a river. And when he came out of meditation, there was a wanderer sitting next to him, who had sat down meanwhile. And this wanderer, who was a practitioner in another, another sect, said to the Buddha, You know, I can meditate very well. I was sitting under a tree meditating, and there was thunder and lightning, and I never heard anything. And the Buddha said, Look across this river on the other bank. What do you see? He said, Oh, something like 500 ox carts. And um, so the Buddha said, That's right. They came from this side, as you can see on the tracks they made while I was meditating here. And they went through the river and came out on the other side of the river. But I never heard them. Now, if you've ever been in the east, and you've heard one ox cart, you know the sound they make. It's almost unbelievably loud and unpleasant, never mind 500 ox carts. So that is possible in the fourth jhana if it's perfected. I'm again saying we don't have to perfect anything, we just have to attempt. And whatever happens, that is the experience we have. And therefore, the first three are quite simple compared to the fourth one. It is a total giving up of being present at the time. Because you can't be present and not hear 500 ox carts going through a river. And not only do the ox carts make a terrible noise, but those who drive the oxen are the noisiest people on earth. They yell and they scream and quite unpleasant actually. So this is an only uh, an explanation of the perfection 
that can happen. The fourth jhana has very distinct results again, as they all do. Having experienced any kind of stillness, and that's why I'm using the simile of the well, because the simile of the well shows that we can go down this well at different stages, but not necessarily down to the bottom. If you're at the bottom of the well, you don't hear a thing. But as you go down these different stages, you still have a lot of stillness. And coming out of that, the mind has absolute equanimity. Very often the fourth jhana is called the jhana of equanimity. But it seems to me that that's not the proper description. Because you don't know you have equanimity while you're in this jhana, but afterwards. So it has as its result equanimity. This resultant of equanimity out of this particular experience translates into daily life. And I have mentioned equanimity to you before as the force of the supreme emotions. And at the time, I said, that we will come to it again when we talk about the meditative absorption. At the time I talked to you about it, I explained to you that its near enemy is indifference. And I explained that to you, how it differs from equanimity. Although outwardly it appears to be similar, inwardly it's a totally different story. The fire enemy, of course, is upset and uh, reaction and all the things that we know. We don't have to go into that. Everybody knows what the opposite is of equanimity. Now we can practice equanimity, feeling, trying to feel even-minded about whatever happens. But it's very hard work because this little jack-in-the-box doesn't wait for us to try to do something. It jumps out immediately, and then we have to stuff it back in and say, now, wait a minute, let's try again, and then we have to try again. So to actually practice equanimity needs calm and insight, both. Now, in the fourth jhana, we get the calm, and from that, of course, also insight. Having experienced, this stillness makes it then quite possible to realize that that state of being where the me is almost totally uh, suspended for a time is much more peaceful than anything that we could ever have dreamt about. It It defies any description that kind of peacefulness. It is something that people sometimes would like to have (coughs) but most people's imagination is not even good enough in order to imagine what it's like to be completely peaceful so from that experience then the understanding arises that the me which reacts to whatever happens is a troublemaker. And that is 
a very important insight. There is only one troublemaker in the whole world, and it's always called me. You can call it ego. It's that ego, me, delusion, which is the troublemaker. It's public and private enemy number one. There is no other. And knowing that from this experience is an enormous insight. We can read it, we can hear it, we can believe it, we can disbelieve it, but experiencing it makes it a totally different uh, situation for us. So having been able to suspend almost totally the me reaction in the fourth jhana and this me reaction in the fourth jhana that is being suspended is feeling, perception and mental formation. These are all suspended at that time to the point where only stillness remains which is also a feeling. So having done that we recognize the fact that that is the way one can have real peace. So we have, in, in this manner, we have had the experience of calm and we've also had the experience of insight. And then, having had that experience, it's the me as the troublemaker. It may be a little easier not to react. Not to react to what's happening. Mind you, one reacts until the third step into Nibbana. So don't be surprised if you keep on reacting. We do. But at least we know we're doing it. And at least we know that it isn't really necessary. Now that's already a big step ahead. But also... Through the continued practice of the meditative absorption and continual means every day, the mind becomes imbued with equanimity. It has that kind of um, input of equanimity through the stillness in the force. And having this input, of course it becomes far more habituated towards it. So not only do we have the calm in the meditation, we have again the residual effect. If these jhanas didn't have a residual effect, they'd really be not worthwhile. And again and again, it's not explained, in fact it's not explained at all, but it's overlooked that this residual effect is what makes the whole difference. Because where are we going to get our equanimity from? That even-mindedness, which makes it possible to stand in front of abuse, to stand in front of insult, and feel nothing. Not to clamp one's mouth shut. That's one way of, of reacting. That is also not such a bad way if the whole thing is going to come out negatively but to actually feel nothing. That can only come from two directions. The experience of that stillness which habituates the mind to that if it's repeated over and over every day so that there is an equanimous feeling within the mind already which remains there as a residual effect 
and so the inside that only the me can make trouble and why should I make trouble for myself? The non-feeling of the insult and the abuse, the no-feeling of it, of course, is greatly helped by the cushioning effect that the jhanas give one. That cushioning effect, which I talked about even in the very first jhana, there already is that cushion of the delightful sensation, the residual effect of that, there's the cushion of the joy, there's the cushion of the contentment, and now already a much stronger one, a cushion of equanimity. With that, we can actually practice much easier the experiences that we have in daily life, which obviously are not always pleasant. There is not a person alive anywhere that has only pleasant experiences. Everybody has some manner or form of unpleasantness coming to them. And it depends very much on our own understanding of this unpleasantness, how we live with it. Now some people really get thrown into fear and panic and don't want anything to do with this unpleasantness, and so they like to remove themselves. Others become very unpleasant themselves. They are, of course, very hard to deal with, because everybody has so many unpleasantnesses that these people might be unpleasant all the time that are reacting with that. Other people react with self-pity. Other people react with depression. Some people react physically get violent headaches. Other people react with um, a kind of um, feeling of being shortchanged in this life. Something is wrong, things aren't working. All sorts of ideas, how we react to these unpleasantnesses. But once we have been able to get the meditation to a point where it becomes a daily pathway, without having to search for it, where we know where we're going, where we can give the mind this soothing, happy feeling, where we can imbue the mind with these other states of consciousness, which are already elevated states of consciousness. When soon as we can do that, all of these reactions change. They may not be totally different, but they are certainly at least 50% reduced, if not more. So we have the experience of equanimity in the fourth jhana. That's why this jhana is often called the equanimity jhana, where this will help us to practice it. Now, equanimity is considered to be the highest of all emotions. And it is important to have another look at how equanimity actually operates so that one can see the difference between equanimity and indifference. Indifference, as I explained to you, is armoring. Putting an armor around one, I don't want anything to do with all this, what's none of my business, uh, let them act crazy, what do I have to do with that? That's the indifference. Indifference is lacking in compassion and unconditional love or in love, any kind of love. 
it lacks that completely because if we armor ourselves we have to armor ourselves against everything we can't just armor a little bit equanimity is a totally different proposition equanimity arising out of the experience of calm and insight has with it of course the feeling of compassion for whatever is unpleasant or unhappy in other people and it's totally imbued with the loving quality because equanimity also is based on the fact that one knows one is going to react wholesomely one is going to react with love and compassion no matter what happens so equanimity has that as its base also so it has to have the development of love and compassion with it since it's based on insight equanimity has to be based on insight it obviously has to have love and compassion in it because insight any strong insight will show us the dukkha the dukkha prevalent in us and others so if there is equanimity dukkha can only arouse compassion so equanimity is a feeling of warmth and evenness because sometimes it is mistaken for a non-feeling and people are inclined to think and to say because I don't want to feel the lows I'd just rather have them both the highs and the lows because it's too boring not to have them this is um, a reaction and a, an argument which is not uncommon because equanimity is considered to be like as if it was no feeling there that's indifference equanimity is a very strong feeling a strong feeling of connectedness a strong feeling of not being touched by the difficulties and therefore being able to be extremely compassionate the Buddha's compassion was said to be total one would assume so and it is said that every morning when he sat in meditation and mind you even a Buddha meditates so what about us huh? he threw out his net of compassion now that means that he uh, used his um, um, divine eye or his um, ability to see far and um, clairvoyance one can say to see whom he could catch in that net of compassion and he would catch find one person who was ready to be taught and would understand his teaching and he would walk as far as 200 miles to see that one person and teach that one person he went everywhere on foot in the days of the Buddha the only transport system there was were ox carts or horse carts and he did not wish to give his weight to an animal to pull and monks and nuns are also not allowed to use those um, 
animal-drawn vehicles. We're much luckier today. We've got horsepower, but there's no animal in it. <laughs> so he would go with that complete compassion, even when he was already getting quite old, to teach that one person. So the compassion arises out of this knowing of dukkha and equanimity, the insight which sees the dukkha as prevalent everywhere is that underlying foundation for having this total compassion. So equanimity is not a non-feeling, it's just a non-reaction to the instability and to the unpleasantness of the things that touch one. There's no touch point anymore. It's like two fences that are fencing with, with each other and one of them is no longer being touched by the uh, saber. It's not possible anymore. So that kind of difference between the equanimity which is the true equanimity and the practice of equanimity has to be seen. While we practice equanimity, we still have our reactions intact. They're all there. But we can tell ourselves with some degree of um, emphasis and wisdom that the reaction is only going to make us unhappy. Why should we actually go along with it and try to substitute? When equanimity has become real, there's no need to substitute, it's there. But in the beginning of the practice, we need to substitute. Substitute the reaction which is coming out with something more wholesome. So there is our um, mindfulness again of the emotional content of what's going on with us. And that's a very important aspect so that we don't um, react impulsively. The fourth jhana is also considered to be a very good springboard for absolute insight and it is certainly a springboard for the higher jhana. In fact, the Buddha very often only spoke about the first four because the next four are extensions of the fourth one. Having done the fourth one, one can extend into the others. I will explain the others tomorrow. We've still got number five, six, seven, and eight. And as they are extensions of the fourth one, they are also um, very important aspects of insight. Because the more we extend this calm tranquility, the more we have to let go of any kind of ego observer, me, support system. The more we have to extend this, the more we have to let go. And it is very important to have this kind of insight that any decent meditation, anything that can be called meditation, which isn't totally distracted, which isn't totally all over the place, needs at least a momentary suspension of the me that is always in the center of things. Now if one realizes that one's own meditation is suffering from the fact that the me is there thinking, maybe it will help, maybe. 
it will help to give oneself a pep talk. One could, for instance, say to the me, say, now look, you've been with me all my life. I'll pick you up right after the meditation. Couldn't you just keep quiet for a little while? Now, that's one way of attacking the situation. And one could uh, also realize that the bother that one has ever had in one's life about anything has only come from that. That doesn't mean we get rid of it just like that. It takes a fair bit of insight to get rid of it. It's not getting rid of the me, mind you. It's getting rid of the delusion that there is a me. We don't get rid of something. There's nothing there to get rid of. It's a mental delusion. It's a mind projection. It's an idea. It's a well-supported idea because everybody's got it. And it's well-supported through all our ambitions, through all our activities. So it's extremely well-supported. But it's nothing but an idea. Getting rid of an idea is still not enough. Because, as you know, which I have explained to you, thinking is also a sense contact. So an idea, which is thinking, is a sense contact. And having had this idea for ever so long, the sense contact has produced the feeling. So we actually feel a me. Even though we can't pinpoint it, we can't put our finger on it, we're all agreed, I'm sure by now, that we're not the body. We can't pinpoint it, we can't put our finger on it, we still feel it. And because we feel it, we want to put a justification to it. So I feel it, so it's got to be there. But the only reason we feel it is because we've thought it for so long. That sense conduct has produced the feeling. And with that feeling, it has produced the naming. The naming is called me. And with the naming of the me, has produced the reaction. The reaction which says, I should have this and not have that. And I should, and so on. Long list of the shoulds, but one, all the things one should have. In getting rid of that delusion is not just done by getting rid of the idea. That's not enough. The feeling remains. There has to be a much stronger input. And this much stronger input is what we'll talk about on the inside path, which I'll keep on explaining. I'm just mentioning it now in order to show that while we're doing the jhanas, we are already having to let go of the manifestation and actions of the me to such a great extent that that is why they are the pathway. Because they help us along this pathway to such an extent where our experience is already quite clear that during this meditation, especially when it is absorption, the me has no place in it. As soon as we come out, there's the me saying, aha, very nice, must have been at least the fourth jhana. So, what did I do there? Mm-hmm. It's impermanent, she said, aha, okay. So, I better do it again. It was very nice. Well, that's not exactly the right way, but that's the way the me talks. 
And then when we tell the me to be quiet a moment and to please use a little more insight, we come to that realization that during that time there wasn't anybody there really. There was just stillness. And that put together makes an enormous difference in one's insight. So this pathway then gives us the possibility to go towards this moment which we can experience in this lifetime where we are actually able to let go of the me to the extent where the feeling is diminished. First it's only diminished. We'll talk about that in detail. Our insights on this on the first four jhanas, which are called the Rupa jhanas, which means the fine material meditative absorption. Nice long word in English. In Pali just Rupa jhana. Four syllables. These insights, which are of the greatest importance, are that our sense contacts cannot provide us with the happiness we have already inside of us. That our thinking that goes on is nothing but the debris in front of the door which we can open if we stop thinking. That the me is being supported by our thinking and therefore we keep on doing it. The me is supported by also being the experiencer. That's why we need to diminish that so that the experience becomes more and more the main focus and not me looking at it. We can see that contentment is due to wishlessness and we can see that stillness, total peacefulness is due to the fact that the me has been diminished to the extent where we are not aware of it. The fourth jhana is compared by the Buddha with a still forest pool where there is nothing coming in, there's no rain falling down, there are no wells that feed the pool, there's no inlet and no outlet. It's completely still. Which also means that we need to let ourselves be in that pool. There's a very nice simile in the commentaries about the first four jhanas which give a very graphic description and are quite helpful to remember. It says, there is a person that is wandering in the desert and is completely parched and can't see any water anywhere. Now that's a person that's unhappy and would like to find peace of mind trying to meditate but the mind is constantly in the way and then that person sees in the distance a pool of water and gets quite excited happily excited that's the first jhana the happy excitement of there is something in the distance that's going to really satisfy and then that person draws near to that pool of water and stands on the edge of the water and is very, very joyful because now that water that is needed for the thirst is really at hand. 
and the joy is quite overwhelming. Well, that's the second time. And then this person dips into the pool and drinks. That's the third jhana, contentment. Now the person has what he or she wanted. He's quite content. And then that person comes out of the pool again and lies down under the nearest shade tree and is completely at peace. Fourth jhana. So this is a very graphic description of our mental state, which can be said to be on those levels if we want to use the worldly description. And as I've said before, we do need the worldly description because it's the only kind of language we have. And with that worldly description, we try also to explain that which goes into the higher levels of consciousness. And one more word about the jhanas. They also, I've said it already, I'll repeat it, they also are impermanent and therefore still within the world. But they are a higher level of consciousness and therefore already transcending the senses and the mental rationality and also the abstract thinking. So we are in the jhanas within the third dimension which is available to all of us. Now that might be enough. So if you have questions, this is the time to ask them. Yes. quite possible to go to any of them at any time when one wants to if one has become has had mastery over the jhanas in order to learn them it's got to be one after the other because each one is the cause for the next one Does it only happen when you start meditating? Yes, but does it only happen in meditation or does it happen to you when you walk around outside? So only in meditation? In the night you walk out. Are you able to concentrate on the meditation subject or is the hum a, a distraction to you? Well, then just forget it. But as soon as you know it's there, you have left the meditation subject and you're under hum. As soon as you know it's there. As soon as you know it's there, it is a distraction, yes. So whatever you do with it, if you um, can stay away from it and use the meditation subject, that's fine. If you can't stay away from it, it's, um, is it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? Well, I mean, it's neutral to pleasant, okay. Well, it's even possible that if it's too distracting to use it as a meditation subject. 
that takes you away too often. Okay, that'd be better. That's fine. Yes. That's very difficult to say because who knows how well one has constructed one's ego. But I can tell you one thing with certainty, that there are people uh, who seem to find it difficult to find their own me identity and they need therapy. And um, there are people who have very um, poor self-image. And those people, for them, it's absolutely essential that they first get an identity image because you can't let go what you haven't got. So that is for sure. If you want to let go of something, you've got to have it in hand first. Um, whether it's more difficult for a person that has a strong ego sense to let go of the ego, is that the question? I don't think so. I think everybody has a very strong me sense. Uh, that is what we call sane. The Buddha said that we're all insane. But what we call sane, everybody has a strong ego sense. And I think the small differences wouldn't make any difference. It's difficult for everyone. I don't think it's more difficult. Okay, what else? Yes. The ones that I have mentioned are the ones that are related to the jhana itself. But there are other possibilities, quite different ones, which I was want to mention uh, when we talk about insight again tonight. Um, the jhana itself brings the mind to a still state or to a happy state so that it can look at impermanence with equanimity. It can look at dukkha with equanimity because it's at ease, it has not upset about anything. So the insight that can come at the time of looking at impermanence or dukkha or even itself are much facilitated through the jhanas. Now there, the only thing that is really called insight in the Buddhist, Buddhist, Buddhist terminology are either seeing impermanence, dukkha, or substancelessness, not self. That's what's called insight. But there are, of course, um, other insights which, for instance, may have to do with one's own um, personal inner life, which one can see all of a sudden that one has been reacting in a certain way to certain triggers all the time and that it's totally unnecessary. Well, that's an insight. And that can come 
after the jhanas quite easily if one puts one's mind to having a look. Some people have spontaneous insight, and uh, most people have to direct them, <laughs> direct the mind. Some people get spontaneous insight. The insight that they get spontaneously, you know, mostly it's, uh, they're related to their own inner life. Why they've been doing what they've been doing and why it isn't very useful what they've been doing. That would be spon- very often spontaneous insight. But very ho- helpful to direct the mind deliberately after the jhana to insight. I was going to mention that tonight. And uh, either way, either about one's own inner life or about impermanence to occur on oneself, doesn't matter. No, the best time is directly after. The best time. What, if you've had the insight, will the insight still be as strong as it was a week earlier? Yes, it will be. If you, all you have to do is bring it up again and you realize that that's the truth. The insight has, the, the, the insight which you got before, it doesn't get lost, it just gets put away in the back there somewhere. It's sort of uh, stored. And if you don't open the storehouse, you don't have it. Yeah, that's it. That has to be done. That is part of the spiritual practice that one reflects upon any of the insights that one's ever had and checks them out again and see whether they're still true. They could have extended or something, or changed even. Usually, if one has had an insight, what happens after continual practice that the insight changes into something more profound, where it takes the whole absoluteness into con- into in this context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good idea. It's, um, it helps to focus them, to focus the mind on them. They don't get lost, but they get put away in the storehouse. It's, and if you don't bring them out, it'll be more difficult to use them. It's like a language you've learned at one time. Um, maybe you don't have that experience, but I certainly do. And you don't use it. It's back there in the storehouse, but you haven't used it for years on end. It's very difficult to bring it out again. You have to really make terrible effort to get it. But if you have used it all the time, the language, well, you just speak it. And the same with insight. 
if you write them down you are more sure of retaining them in the front part of your experience and bringing them out again and again into your mind like bringing out impermanence again and again into your mind any insight you've had about it any at all is very helpful because then you speak the language of impermanence so writing down is very helpful anything else I, I haven't caught the question. Tell me again. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. In ja- when you have jhanas, it doesn't come. At the time outside of jhanas. Yeah, no, no fear, no. Yeah. Yeah, but the mind is a totally different mind that does jhanas. Yeah, yeah, sure, but it, it, it remains a different mind. It remains a different mind. Yes. Yes. The people who, who do jhanas are those people that one could possibly des- describe with that they have a meditative mind. I mean, this kind of description is one of these new age uh, uh, ideas that people who sit down on a pillow have meditative minds. Well, they don't. I mean, you've noticed that already, haven't you? But people who do the jhanas, one can say, have, have a meditative mind. They don't meditate all the time. It's not what's meant. But the mind has a quality in it which can easily reflect. And so the, the um, insight that has been gained uh, is not a fearful one, even at any time. Because the mind has a different quality, a different quality mind. Well, yes. If you, if you don't do it for a year uh, and then try to get back in it, you'd have a hard time getting back in it anyway. So it's like starting new again. <laughs> well, in your case, I don't hesitate to say yes because you've been committed anyway. <laughs> so it's okay. <laughs> yes, you are committing yourself to continuous process, but you're committing yourself to continuous process, which makes you happy. So it's not very difficult. Hmm? You know, it's not the kind of thing that you're committing yourself to something which is really terrible, like uh, something that you have to eat every day, something dreadful just because it's going to be healthy for you. You know, it's not like that, because it's a very nice commitment. Well, there is an end to the high, high quality. I mean, you can do it perfectly, that's it. Oh, yes. There is a difference between just a little bit and uh, doing it uh, very well. But the Buddha, I mean, the question is so easily answered because the Buddha uh, meditated every day. 
and uh, he he died in the jhanas. So obviously, you know, he kept doing it, and he didn't need to get any more insights. I mean, he had them. So it's a it's just a quality of mind that you get from it, and so he he kept that going. Yes. Well, you can question it, but I can also give you the answer. Would you like the answer? It's the me saying, I don't want to be shut out. And the more often you shut me out, the more anxious I'm going to get. <laughs> give, it, give the ego a pep talk. <laughs> Tell it it can come right back after the meditation. It's not being shut out. It's just temporarily not recognized. That's all. Give it a nice talk. Give it, be nice and kind to it. Give it a little bit of loving kindness. Say, I love you very much, little ego, but just for a little while, just be quiet for a little while. Just for 20 minutes, that's all. And then extend it to 30 or 40. Give it a nice pep talk. It's the, it's the, the me that is, uh, you know, that feeling which I described or explained, which comes from this ideation that the whole world has and the feeling which then, you know, establishes itself because of that, that feeling is so strong in us that everything we've got resists the opposite, letting go. Everything we've got. That's why this is one of the reasons, one very important reason why one should look at one's own death every single day. Only those who give up their life can have eternal life. Eternal life does not mean being immortal. It means just letting go of the me for a moment so that you can experience something entirely different. It is very important to look at one's own death every single day. That's why it's called the five daily recollections. It's not to make us unhappy. We're going to die anyway. And if we haven't thought about it, it's going to be terribly difficult. It, in fact, it's to take away the tragedy of the death and it's going to show us that it's much, much better if we could because we're going to lose the whole uh, content of what we are anyway that we could let go of that a little bit already ahead of time. So that's one of the helps. The other help is, as I said, is the uh, four elements, particularly earth and air, or wind, earth and air, India, uh, Seeing, uh, feeling the earth extending outwards, feeling the air extending yourself outwards, so that this me illusion is not as binding as it is for everyone. It is not a, a blame situation by any means. This is a binding for the whole world, for every person in the world. They are bound by this. And the only way we can let go a little bit, and the fear situation is a very strong reaction to this letting go, is by taking means, uh, taking steps to minimize a bit. Death is one. The other one is the element. And given the pet talk, understanding what is, what am I, what is happening here? 
let me relax into the meditation don't allow this to happen that to me is always trying to be the, of the utmost importance so try both of those and then of course another third one even giving this distraction and this difficulty your love and compassion not resistance that makes it worse I want to get rid of it that makes it twice as bad give it your love and compassion recognize that this is nothing but the me acting up so I'll give it some love and compassion soothe it like a mother soothes an unruly child so try those three method, methods okay yes yes Well, if, if the meditation can, uh, is, can be done, it dissolves automatically. But some people need to have some therapy first because they just can't meditate. I mean, that happens over and over again. They just can't get to it. They are too upset. So they can't get to it, so they have to have some therapy and try to release some of that through the therapist's uh, conversation I mean, and listening to them and all that. But automatic uh, uh, antidote in the meditation comes about because you have to let go of all that stuff. Otherwise you can't meditate. It's automatic. That's right. That's right. You don't have to. As I said before, you don't have to look into the garbage can and say, well, this is the, the pips from the apple I ate the day before yesterday, and this is the wrapping of the sausages, and this is the can that has the spaghetti. You just put the garbage can let it be taken out. You don't have to look at all this. You just let it, let it go.